0: the word of God from Revelation chapter 17 18 and chapter 19 chapter 19 verses 1 through 10 one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me come I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of, the, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is lord of lords and king of kings, And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, pour her a double portion from her own cup, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. Woe, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargos anymore. Cargos of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin." Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of all God, and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, "Write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the to the wedding supper of the lamb." And he added, "These words, sorry, these are the true words of God." At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Sarah. Sarah did a great job reading a large chunk of scripture. And you may be wondering, there's no way you're going to preach on all that scripture. So why would you have Sarah read all that scripture? Well, if you guys don't remember, um, I just want to remind you that our goal for this series in the book of Revelation is to have every bit of the book read out loud during our time together. So yes, you're right. I'm not going to cover every bit of all that, but we want the whole book to be read out loud. And honestly, part of me was just tempted to just sit right back down and be like, I'll leave you with that. (laughs) Just because it was enjoyable I was sitting here, and I'm sitting next to my wife, and we're, just she looks at me, and she goes, she goes what? <laughs> like, huh? And you know, just fairly well read, and this is difficult stuff, so let's, let's go and pray to God that he gives us wisdom as we expound scripture together. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're well this gorgeous, beautiful Sunday. I know it's nice and cold outside, and I love it. See, for me, this is beautiful, Crisp, cold weather that turns a little warmer during the day. It gets nice and cold. I love this weather. And it's so good to hear words of Thanksgiving together. It's so good for me. Thank you for those of you who shared. I know there's a lot more that we can share, but thank you for those who did share. It's such joy for me to hear what God is doing in your life. It encourages me. It lifts me up. And guys, I know it lifts each other up. So thank you so much for those of you who shared. And I love that we get to do that as a body together. That's one of my favorite things is I love it when my kids celebrate, right? I love it when my kids get so excited about something when something good happens or looking forward to going on a trip. Or like right now my kids are so excited about going to see their grandparents for Thanksgiving. You know, that just excites me. I love just uh, living in that moment with them. I love living in that moment with you guys. Waypoint Church, we don't need to be private, you know, we don't, we don't need to live everything just like, oh, it's okay to share the things that are happening, that are good in your life. We want to celebrate with you. We want to celebrate with you. We want to, we want to love you in the midst of times that are good and in the times, midst of times that are bad. We're called to do this thing together. I know it's so difficult. This is so foreign for so many of us to live in community, to share life together, to actually be open and vulnerable to share what moves them, what hurts them, what they're thankful for, it's weird, it's different. I understand that. But I believe this is what God's called his people to walk in. But here's a challenge. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to take you being open, you taking multiple steps. It's going to be you maybe being hurt sometimes or being rejected sometimes. It's going to take grace. It's going to take forgiveness. But my people, it's worth it because God called us to it. So when you take steps in living in community, when you do the hard work of being vulnerable, when you do the awkward thing of willing to share your hurts and your dreams and your thankfulness and your issues and really build into each other. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me so far? That wasn't a sermon today. That's not on Babylon, but I just had to go there right now. I just made me, I felt compelled to share that. Today, we had a large chunk of scripture read, and it focuses on Babylon. Last week, Pastor Eric mentioned that for some reason, he has been given the chapters on Judgment. He said he preached on the seven plays and the time previous he preached on the seven trumpets. And he's like, why am I the one preaching on all the judgment? Am I the judgmental pastor? Am I the wrathful pastor? I don't know. That's what he, was, he said that last week. He shared that. Well, lately it looks like I have passages focusing on the enemy and temptation. So what does that make me? What does that say about me? <laughs> Not sure. I, was, I was just figured maybe, I don't know if that says anything. I just want to throw that out there as a question, but moving on. As most of you already know about me, I'm a fairly positive person. My wife would say that my theme song from my life, you guys already know, is the theme song from the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome. I've been known to start singing out of the blue, randomly, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. Ross guys blue. Because I honestly believe that there is good in the world by God's grace. I love it. I mean, I'm the guy that wakes up and I'm like, ooh, it's 30 degrees. I'm like, ooh, it's a nice wet day today. I love it. I love, I mean, I'm, I'm that guy who, who looks out and thinks, honestly, like, the glass isn't half full. I'm like, it's about to be full, <laughs> right? I'm an optimist. I, that's just who I am, my personality. I just enjoy the things of life. When I eat food, she's just like, everything can't taste that awesome all the time. I'm like, it does. She's like, that's not the best thing ever all the time, because everything can't be the best thing ever. It is. Yeah. That's just who I am. I admit it. That's my personality. I I acknowledge that. But I also acknowledge that, honestly, we live in often a messed up world as well. Even in my personality, I can still acknowledge that with all truthfulness. I mean, honestly, I don't have to look very hard or for very long to be hit with the brokenness of this world, from cancer to greed to starvation to racism. It's clear that the world is also messed up in the midst of how good it is. And I feel like our journey through the book of Revelation has revealed to us so much of why the world is the way it is and the great hope we have in it. It reveals something of the source of the troubles that do plague us. This book shows us through symbolic visions that behind all the sin and suffering that we see in the world lies an ancient cosmic and spiritual battle. In the beginning, Satan himself revolted against God. And that dragon, the ancient serpent, tempted men to rebel against God. But God, being rich in mercy, showed grace to fallen humanity. And in his grace, he did not immediately judge man fully and finally, but permitted them to live in this broken world. And in his saving and special saving grace, he calls chosen people in this world to walk with him by faith in Jesus Christ. And to put it in different terms, God is now building his kingdom, his rule and reign on this broken world. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Satan is in his death throes. He's waging war, he doesn't want it to happen. He knows he's lost a battle, but he wants to bring as many people down with him as possible. That's our reality in the world that we see, as we've seen painted through the book of Revelation so far. Our passage today reveals us, to us this new character, the harlot or the prostitute, and her destruction. And it flows directly out of the seventh bold judgment in Revelation 16. And it goes into chapter 17 and 18, it describes the seductive ways of the harlot, but also her final destruction. So we read in verse 1 in Revelation 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. There's an important contrast right away that the, Revelation, the book of Revelation the author John is making here. He's setting up a contrast between this harlot to the bride or to the wife of the lamb, set forth in Revelation 21, nine. In Revelation 21, John writes says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls for the seven last plagues came and said to me, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Therefore the account of the harlot in Revelation 17 through 19 who is incensed to bride of the beast is contrasted to the bride of Christ found in Revelation chapter 21. And this is an intentional and noticeable contrast that John wants you to get right away. Now this is, While very seductive because of her wealth, glamor, and celebrity, the beauty of the harlot or the prostitute. I'm gonna go back and forth with those two words. So if you guys are confused, when I go back and forth. That's the different commentators, different translations use both those words. The harlot or the prostitute. It's temporary and fleeting. John says, but it's for one hour. Now guys, what the harlot is, is the epitome of impurity and wickedness. But the beauty of the bride of Christ, Revelation 21, is eternal. Since the church is clothed in the perfect righteousness of the bridegroom, radiant, spotless bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. Now this contrast is so intentional, it wants to see how beautifully adorned, as we think in a worldly manner, this, this harlot is, and in contrast to the way the bride, clean linen, is adorned. The great prostitute, surely to be identified as Babylon, a great, sits on many waters this is identifying her with the great river of Babylon, the Euphrates, mentioned in the previous chapter. As we'll read in verse 15, the fact that John expands this to include many waters, he says later on in verse 15, that it is indicative of her dominion to all peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Her sin is depicted in Revelation seventeen two, in terms of her adultery, which is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament for spiritual infidelity, which is idolatry. John says, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Guys, throughout the writings of Israel's prophets, there are a number of important references to pagan empires, nations in which they're said to be drunk on military power, great wealth, false religion, and self-righteousness. In Ezekiel, the prophet speaks of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness in terms of adultery and prostitution. Israel loves her sinful ways so much that she takes lovers without charging them the normal fee, it says. In Nahum, it says, we read of God's impending judgment on Nineveh. In Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 27, we read of the prophecies against the cities of Tyre and Sidon, cities which boasted in their great wealth and their military power, but were filled with wickedness. In Jeremiah 50, we read of God's impending judgment upon the historic city of Babylon, which had conquered Israel and held God's people in captivity. So when John speaks of the great prostitute who seduces the kings of the earth, he has in mind the culmination of all these Old Testament images. He has also in mind, I'll I'll go back and say that again. When John talks about this idea of the prostitute, of the seductress, of this taking away of of the worship of God, that's what he's thinking about, understanding that all the Old Testament had this imagery used throughout the whole time. We see that in, in, in Hosea, and the taking of his wife that was unfaithful. We see it used all throughout his idea, this term, analogy of infidelity, of adultery being used for the relationship that Israel had with her God. He also has in mind the city of Rome and the mighty Roman Empire, which extends to the end of the earth. Rome is not only the beast which persecutes the church, which we discussed before, that the beast is represented for John's mind by the empire of Rome. Rome was not only the beast which persecutes the church, but Rome's cultural prowess, her great attainments in, in economics and arts and literature, her enlightened ways of thinking has seduced a number of Christians. This is clearly seen in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, when John mentions that the church in Thyatira tolerated the false teachings of Jezebel, while Christians in Laodicea placed great confidence in their wealth and success, even though they're actually poor, blind, and naked. Through the use of this imagery, John not only has in mind the city of Rome and the Roman Empire, which has even then the beast and the harlot, the great prostitute of Babylon the Great also symbolizes the city of man in every age, which through wealth, celebrity, luxury, seduces Christians away from Christ into the arms of the bride of the dragon. It's kind of like the black widow. Seduces away, but ends up killing Therefore the harlot is Babylon while at the same time is symbolic of any adulterous nation or empire or culture that seduces Christians away from Jesus. Like most harlots who think their actions will gain them love and affection, it actually won't be long before her pimp, the beast, will cast her away from the moment her glory fades. Yes, I just called the beast and the pimp and the harlot a prostitute. This isn't me, this is actually in the Bible. They actually have a pimp and a harlot. Isn't that weird I just thought that was funny, I don't know why. That actually says that in the Bible. And what it is, is that the beast is the master of the heartland. They work in a symbiotic relationship. And what is symbolized in the time for, for, for John and his writing is the, is the culture and the city state of Rome. We acknowledge it when we spoke earlier about the beast coming out It's a political power. And so the beast tempted the people by political power, by oppression, saying, We are the force of power. You obey or you will die. Or your confidence can be found in how powerful the Roman Empire is. Look, be confident. You live under the Roman Empire. You're a Roman citizen. Worship Caesar because he is God. Right? But the harlot now is symbolized by Babylon. And in this day and age, for John symbolized by the culture of the Roman Empire. The excess. The wealth. Come enjoy the baths. Come enjoy the wine to its full. Enjoy our enlightened culture. Enjoy the, the temple prostitutes. Whatever it may be, is that the culture that is promised by Rome is to harlot, a seduced away. And this is not a new problem, this is Babylon. This is the adulterous woman that's been in existence all throughout the Old Testament as well. Do you see where we're at so far? And just as the prophet Isaiah had been taken away into the wilderness to witness the four horsemen in Isaiah 2, one of whom brings destruction upon Babylon with all her idols were smashed to the ground. John is now caught away to the same wilderness where he now witnesses destruction of Babylon. There are a number of important things in view here. So I was reading verse 3 Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. Recall that in Revelation 13, John was also spirited away to the wilderness to witness God protect the woman Israel from the dragon but now he sees a different woman, the harlot. And just as Israel was hidden away in the wilderness to be spared from the assault of the dragon to protect her that she might later receive her promised inheritance, in a great reversal, the glittery and wealthy Babylon the great will be left desolate after God's judgment falls upon her. This irony is definitely intentional. We know that this particular woman is not Israel because she is the one who seduces the nation and intoxicates the kings of the earth with her great wealth. Instead of being hidden away in the wilderness and protected by God, this woman rides the beast. It's the same beast whom John had witnessed rising out of the sea, the beast with the ten horns, the seven heads, the same beast who's covered with blasphemous names and colored scarlet, same as the dragon in Revelation 13. This woman is dressed to seduce. According to John, she was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittered with gold, precious stones, and pearls. And I want you to get this. This is an image of temple prostitution. Something well known to John's first century readers. Her cosmetic beauty makes her a kind of counterfeit to the true bride. The bride of Christ. Her is the earthly glory, not the heavenly glory of the righteousness of Christ. Her gross idolatry is symbolized by the fact that she holds a cup in her hand filled with abominable things. I love that word, by the way. Abominable. Where else have you heard that word before? Right? Which so I'm trying to figure out what does abominable mean. So we do we call this snowman abominable because because he's an abomination. Is that what you're like? I never thought of it that way? I never related that. Okay, random thought. <laughs> What's an abomination? Like to, to me, an abomination means like that's the worst of the world. That is something that's so wrong. That's an abomination. And in her hand she held a cupful of abominable things in the filth of her adulteries. With this, she intoxicates the kings of the earth. She's clearly identified mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. And this, having seduced the kings of the earth and allying herself with the beast to earn his favor, she's held responsible for actions. John can say of her, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Dennis Johnson, in his book, The Triumph of the Lamb, states, the harlot's seductive influence and the beast's course of violence are symbiotic. The nations bow to Rome, not simply because of its legion's suppressed insurrection, the beast, but also because Rome's far-flung administrative efficiency maintains societal stability and economic prosperity, the harlot. The threat of force and their allure of affluence work perfectly together, so of course Babylon celebrates the slaughter of Jesus' people since they refuse to buy into their economic interests. This amazing connection between the power of the sword, the beast, and the seduction of the temptress moves John to declare, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. It's almost as if having seen for the first time how the power of the beast and the attraction of the harlot come together in the form of the Roman Empire, John now understands, as he never did before, the great power of the dragon over the peoples of the earth and says, John is amazed. You guys, one way for us to understand this connection better is to see it in our own modern-day experience, the beast in our day and age could be what? It could be maybe a love for supremacy of nation or power. It could be that for in our beast in our day and age, could be they like say, oh, I, my confidence is found that my nation, or whatever nation may be, is the most powerful and the most incredible and has all the tools, has all the bombs, has all the military, so my security is safe and I find my security in the fact that I'm part of this nation. That's not real. That's the allure of the beast. To trust in a nation, any nation, doesn't matter how good a nation it is, is to put our hope and security in this world. That's the current tactic of the beast. But in this situation then, in like situation, what is this, the tactic of the harlot? The harlot would be then uh, working symbiotically with the beast is to say, buy into the false allure of what uh, security in this nation might look like. In other words, it could look like buy into the American dream as the end all of your life that all you need is success, comfort, and security, and your life is good. If you have more stuff, your life is good. If you have more wealth, your life is good and you're secure. Hear me very well. This is not a critique upon any nation or upon any desire to acquire wealth in a good manner. This is a critique. This is what the harlot uses. He the harlot and the beast uses anything to take you away from finding your security, your comfort, your desires met in the one true God. Anything else is idolatry. Do you hear me, people? The harlot is consumerism, materialism, greed, and excess as offered up. This is a symbiotic relationship. And John is astonished because what in the world? Of course, how do you refuse that? How do you refuse to allure the beast and the allure of the harlot? He's astonished because he thinks, man, okay, I would give in to that too. On my own power, I can't stand up because honestly, guys, can we just be real as human beings? Don't we long for security? Don't we want the excesses of this world? Don't we desire the things that the world tells us to desire? I'm with you guys. Please hear me very well. This is not me up here being like, guys, don't do these things because I don't ever want to because I'm better than you. No, this is me coming to you and saying, no, no, that allure of what the beast offers and what this harlot offers is great. Oh, man, I want it all. I want to win that lottery. And my motives might be a little bit better than others. Well, not because I won all the sports clothes. I want to help a bunch of people. I tell that to God sometimes. I'm like, God, I'd be okay with $50 million because I help a lot of people. Yeah. Right. You guys know I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Right? You justify it with God. You like, I can walk down. Somebody can hand me a check. It's okay. Can I tell you something? My people, anything, that takes away your identity, your hope, your trust, your devotion, your worship, your awe and adoration from God and places it more into that thing is idolatry. Let me tell you, sometimes I put it in my wife. Where I look to my wife as my security and my source of who I am as a person and as a man, that's not where it belongs. I love my wife. And she does deserve my love and adoration but only after first I give it to God and find who I am in him. Do you hear me? I love my country. I thank God that I was born in America. I thank God for the gifts and the blessings and the sacrifices of all the people that made this country so great, right? But if I give my loyalty first to this country over who my God is, or if my identity is first found in me being an American, then that is not right. Do you hear me? Temptation of the beast and of the harlot. And they work symbiotically together. But not for long, it says. In verse John 7 tells us at this point, the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the women, the beast she rides. The explanation of mystery is as follows: which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. The beast is a counterfeit to Christ, for he was, is not, and is yet to come. John's already told us that that one of the beast's heads was slain, a reference to Nero myth, and the fact that the Roman Empire suffered what appeared to be a mortal wound, only to come back stronger than ever. At the time of John's writing, the beast in the form of the Roman Empire was already persecuting the church. But John now speaks of a future beast yet to come, something implied by the the sixth bowl of judgment that might come later on. In Revelation 17, 9, the angel reminds John this calls for a mind with wisdom. Just as it did to understand the mysterious 666, the number of the beast, the first matter is that the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, which is most likely a reference to the city of Rome, famous for its seven hills. But throughout the prophets, mountains are often symbolic of great power and are mentioned in connection with the rule of pagan empires. Thus, the fact that the seven mountains are also seven kings. Seven mountains and seven kings not only refer to the city of Rome and its empire, persecuting the church even while John was writing, but this apocalyptic symbolism is used here, refers to the fact that it first mentioned in Revelation 13, 7, that the beast was given authority over every people, nation, and tongue, and And reiterated again here that the harlot who sits on many waters is the one who seduces many persons. In other words, what this is saying is that the beast and the harlot have power. And they're reigning in this earth. And then verses 10 through 11 are probably the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Revelation. That's a bold statement because pretty much all of Revelation is like, what? (laughs) And the angel said it calls for wisdom. That's what it actually says. says this calls for wisdom. So it's, it's, like you say, it's already hard to interpret, but specifically this calls for says, five have come, five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven as going to his destruction. Who wants to interpret that real quick? <laughs> right? Yeah, it sounds like that, right? It sounds like, almost like a, a, either a prophecy or a poem or like a, a riddle almost. There are many theories as to what this means. As there, are, there's just as many theories as there are commentators. Most try to correlate these seven kings to the four great empires that Daniel mentions, or to the succession of Roman emper- emperors, beginning with Julius or Augustus down through eight successive emperors, with the supposition that five emperors have come and gone, and that John's writing during the reign of the sixth one, the emperor who is. Now, there may be some merit to some of these approaches. I think it's better to view this succession of kings not historically, but theologically. The number seven, as we have seen, is the number of fullness or completion. If we look at the angel's words with this in mind, it's possible that the seven kings represents the entire history of fallen humanity. By the time of the coming of Christ, five of these empires have come and gone, with John and his readers facing the sixth. Rome, maybe? With the seventh yet to come who will remain for but a short time, which is his period same period of time John has also mentioned in Revelation twelve, to refer to the short time remaining for the dragon after his defeat at Calvary's cross. According to the angel, after these seven kings have come and gone, one of the earlier kings, connected to the beast, reappears as an eighth king, who will go to his destruction. This, it seems to me, indicates that however we understand the relationship of seven kings to the emperor of Rome, we should not overlook the fact that that these words, we are fast-forwarded from the time of John to the time at the end. So in other words, he's talking about church age, which is uh, post-Jesus, post-the cross and resurrection, being a short time with one reign, knowing that there's a future judgment day that John is now fast-forwarding to. When the eighth king appears, probably in direct connection to the release of the beast from the abyss we once again are given a picture of a final battle of Armageddon, the Mounted Gathering, where Satan seeks to destroy the kingdom of God only to be destroyed himself. And this is talking about a manifestation of a worldwide empire that's kind of reaching the fullness of its attempt to end all things that culminates in Judgment Day. Now this is an apocalyptic pattern that follows with the ten ten kings depicted in verses 12 through 14. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, who, but for who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast, They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers so like the seven kings and the ten kingdoms depicted by the ten horns will like do the bidding of the beasts these are probably the same kings mentioned in Revelation 16 in connection to the sixth bowl of judgment who have deceived by the three demon spirits who were gathered together in Armageddon to wage war on the church. So in other words, he's fast-forwarding a time. Guys, so Pastor Eric mentioned, this is complicated, I know. You guys are like, I feel like your eyes are glo- like, what? So let me explain it a little bit, real quick. Pastor Eric mentioned last time that a lot of the, the, the plagues, the, the, the trumpets, the seals, all this stuff, it's not a chronological thing, that like these happen first, then this happens, then this happens. Actually, it's multiple perspectives on the same time. You with me so far? Right? There are multiple perspectives on the same overall course of history. And what he's doing here is also doing this, is that he's saying, okay, here's church age, right? but there also will come at the end a judgment day. That it will all culminate to one day being finished. And the final battle, the final attempts, the final death throes of Satan against all that God's gathered together will come, and it will end in Satan's defeat and Babylon's fall. That's what all this language is talking about. The false prophet, the ten kingdoms cannot prevail over the king of kings no matter how hard that tried. That's the most amazing thing about this vision is Don's description of the fate of the harlot. Although she has served the beast and done his bidding, she suffers the same fate as those that she has seduced. In verse 15, we learn the harlot's fate. And the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is a great she that rules over the kings of the earth. When the time of end finally comes, Satan's kingdom will be divided against itself. And the first casualty will be the harlot. The very same kings and nations who commit spiritual adultery with her will now turn on her. And just as ancient Rome fell under the weight of its own immorality, when sacked by the very nations who profited from Rome's trade and order, so too then with the final manifestation of the harlot seer come to an end by those whom she seduced. Ironically, the beast will himself become the agent by which God brings judgment upon the great prostitute. For God puts in the beast's heart to hate the harlot. And in Revelation 18, we read of two angels and the voice from heaven who will explain the meaning of the demise of the great prostitute. And so what we should compare to those who read this prophecy is that the glories of the city of man are superficial and fleeting. Can I tell you sometimes, guys, can I be honest? With you? I, I asked um, some, of my, um, some of our friends from here who we went to a uh, city called Dubai. And I, I've seen videos on Dubai and see how amazing it looks. I'm like, have you guys seen videos of all this crazy buildings? They tried making islands that look like the world. Like, there's crazy stuff about Dubai. So I was like, Hey, how was Dubai? Was it awesome? Was it crazy? Like, tell me about it. And they're like, eh. I was like, what do you mean eh? I mean, Dubai looks amazing. Dubai looks incredible. How do you say eh? She goes, honestly, they they looked at me and they said, honestly, like, after you see all the incredible beauty, you look kind of like in the streets and you look at the people and you see a lot of people suffering. You see a lot of people struggling and that makes me just go, eh. Eh can I tell you something? That the allure of the world looks incredible. It's shiny, it's glitzy, but it's lipstick on a pig. You guys like that? I heard that one the other day. (laughs) I was very happy about using that one. Because here's the problem, guys. You can't be just real with you. you. can't be honest with you just for one second. I can't be honest with you just for one second. That, that that promise of security in this life, the promise of wealth, the promise of power, the promise of prestige, the promise of sexual immorality, the, of physical uh, gratification, whatever it may be, it seems so tempting. It seems so desirable. And we want it because if it wasn't desirable, then we wouldn't want it. We wouldn't be tempted by it. But we are because we want it. Can I can't tell you something? Can we look at it and see it for what it truly is? truly is in light of Christ. See, the promise is, is we hold these things up, we see the harlot and she looks beautiful. And so we pursue and we go after, maybe secretly so that other people don't know, but we pursue. And the reason we do that is because we're not holding her up to the real thing. We only see the prostitute and we see the, the pearls and the jewelry and we're like, yes, I want to go after that. We don't, but, but we've held up the real thing. We held up the bride of Christ next to her and see what true, lasting beauty is. Then maybe we wouldn't go. My people, I've always said this. I've always said it's not good enough to say don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. It's not good enough to say don't sin, don't do these things. Can I tell you that we need to offer our people, we need to offer our saints something better. We say don't sin because this is better. Can I tell you right now, when we say don't pursue the harlot, can I say why not pursue the harlot? Because the bride of Christ is more beautiful. And why not pursue the beast and all that the beast promises because Jesus Christ is more beautiful. Because he's more powerful and he gives you much more than the beast can ever give you in all his fake promises. And so we've come to this spot where we've come face to face with another counterfeit trinity where we have the beast and the harlot and, and, and lifting up this idea of, of the dragon, the beast, and the harlot and he's this counterfeit trinity and they're offering this and this looks so good. It does, doesn't it? Money, power, prestige, yourself, you're the God. You make all the decisions. You're in control. You can do it all. You don't need anybody. You don't need God. And it looks good because it feeds into your ego and to the basic desires of our flesh. But may we compare it like the book of Revelation does by seeing Jesus enthroned. May we see the bride of Christ May we look into the righteousness of God. May we see the love that pursues, a love that conquered by dying and say, that is better. That is lasting. That is real. It's not lipstick on a pig. It's the real thing. Guys, can I leave you with this? When I was younger, I used to think my uncle was so much cooler than my dad. My uncle would come pick me up, and he was younger than my dad, and he was he would come and pick me up and be like, let just go skiing, or let's go play tennis, or let just go do this. And I'm like, Uncle, you're so cool. Why is my dad not like you? I wish my mom married you instead. And I was just, that's what I thought. I'll be honest with you. I was a kid, and I'm like, he, he buys me stuff and he takes me out, and my dad just works all the time. That's what I thought. Can I tell you how much love my dad has given me? Patiently working, sacrificing everything for me so I can know what real love is. Right now sometimes what Satan offers it looks like the cool uncle. You chase after it because it looks cool and satisfying now. But the sustaining love of Jesus gets you through every situation and it's your identity. Choose the real trinity. Stop chasing after the counterfeit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you pursued us. God, that you paid the ultimate price of sending your son to die upon the cross for us. May we choose to put up before us, against the harlot and against the beast, may we see the real trinity. Against the, the, the allure of the prostitute, may we see the beauty of the bride. Against the allure of the beast, may we see the beauty of Jesus. May we see the true trinity that you call us to be, to, to belong to and to pursue, God, may we pursue you. May we find in you a love that sustains and a love that endures. May we stop chasing after lipstick on pigs or pigs that have lipstick on. Best way I can say it. And we choose to chase after you. God, we love you and we thank you for the sustaining work that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.